You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 25, The Grand Inquisitor. Today I thought that I would talk about my favorite novel, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. One of the reasons this is my favorite novel is one of the chapters called The Grand Inquisitor. So that's where the title for today's episode comes from. Um, You know, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is just talk about what I want to talk about. It seems like the perfect format because if you're not interested in listening, you can shut it off and I can't tell that you shut it off. You know, I'm not looking at the analytics, not really paying attention to how many listeners I have, so it doesn't hurt my feelings and I get to do this and talk about things that I love and feel like, you know, there's an illusion here that there are people listening. So everybody wins. And one of the things that I like to do is talk about books and talk about this book in particular, The Brothers Karamazov. It's it's a hard read, not because it's hard to understand, but for two basic reasons. The first is it has a lot of characters, and these characters have a variety of names, each one of them, and the names are Russian, so that's hard. The second reason is it's just long, and it takes its time, and it's not written like books are written today. There's not a lot of concision. You think about it, in 19th century Russia, you uh, were shut up in the house nine months out of the year because of cold weather, and you had a lot of time to sit and think and read and write, and so that produces these really epic novels like Tolstoy's War and Peace, or the Brothers Karamazov. It's worth the read. If you can ever put the time into it, it's worth the read. But in case you don't want to put the time into it, and you just want a taste of Dostoevsky, you can tune in to Wide Margins and listen to this, because I'm going to share with you a highlight of this novel that has a lot of spiritual importance, I think, and that is very instructive in terms of human psychology and all kinds of all kinds of interesting things. Before I get into it, though, I want to talk a little bit about the life of Fyodor Dostoevsky. I don't think you can separate his biography from his works. I think what happened to him in his formative years has a lot to do with the works that he was able to produce later on. He was born in 1821 and was raised in a military family. He was trained to be a military engineer. But after his father died, that kind of freed him up to do what he wanted to do, and what he wanted to do was write books. So he started writing, and he had some success, and he got involved in some politics, subversive politics, uh, anti-government politics. He joined this group called the Petrushevsky Circle, and they became known to the government, This was when the Tsars were in control, before Soviet Russia in the 19th century. And uh, in 1849, when this group was felt to be a threat, Dostoevsky and his uh, fellow anti-government friends were all arrested and sentenced to death. Now, this is a very pivotal moment in Dostoevsky's life. He thought it was the end of his life. They even went so far as to bring him before a firing squad. They lined him and his friends all up, as I understand it. 
they may have been blindfolded or standing there facing the firing squad, truly believing with all of their hearts that they were at their last moment, when all of a sudden a man on horseback rode up, delivered a notice that the sentence was commuted to prison. So he spent four years in a labor camp in Siberia and another four years or so in uh, forced military duty and he emerged from that in 1859 a changed man there is a legend I'm not sure if it's true or not I think it's pretty pretty well documented that at the prison camp they were allowed to take one book with them and Dostoevsky had the New Testament and so that's what he read and especially in those four years of the work camp that's what he fed on for all of that period of time and it really he was a religious man to begin with but it really convicted him of Christianity and he stayed a devoted member of the Russian Orthodox Church for the rest of his life now that doesn't mean he wasn't critical of the Orthodox Church he was as we we shall soon see but all of this had a lot to do with his explorations of the human condition of suffering of meaning in life, of freedom. You'll see that as another theme. Of love, of religious corruption, of government corruption, uh, those kinds of things. He had a lot of seminal works, Notes from the Underground being one of them. In 1866, he came out with Crime and Punishment, which many of you have heard of. But the best and my favorite is The Brothers Karamazov, which was released in at the end of 1880 and right before his death in January of 1881. This book, as I said, is an epic full of a lot of characters. The main story surrounds a father and his three, maybe four sons, and all the characters surrounding them. And the part of the book I'm going to focus on today is a part of a conversation between two of the brothers, Ivan and Alyosha, as they're talking about religion, about life in general, about what they want to do with their lives. These are very young men. And in the midst of this arises a story about the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus Christ. Ivan tells Alyosha that he has written a poem and when we usually think of a poem, we think of something with lines, maybe it rhymes, it has meter, it has some kind of structure to it. We usually make it oppositional to prose, like a novel. But this is a poem of a different kind, and you kind of have to just use the context to tell in what sense does Ivan mean this is a poem. It sounds like a story, and that's what it is. But it's a poem in the sense that it sticks in your head. I don't know if you've ever found that to be the case with a song or with a very important piece of poetry or some literature that you've memorized or that you love or maybe even a film. Certain works of art stick in your head and you can't get them out of your head. And I think that is the sense in which Ivan Ivan's story, I think I should call him Ivan, Ivan's story is a poem. It's, it doesn't rhyme, it doesn't have lines, it's not in meter, it's, it's set to prose, but it sticks with you. It just has this mysterious way about it that just grabs you and makes you think. And that's why I wanted to share it on the podcast today. 
So let's get to it. I'm going to read some of it. I'm going to try to tell the story and strip it down to where it won't take an hour to go through this. But I want to give you the essentials of it so that you can really get a sense of, of what makes this great. Um, so here it goes. The story begins set in the 16th century during the Spanish Inquisition in Seville, Spain. Uh, Spanish Inquisition was rough. The church was, it had a stranglehold on the people. It was naming heretics and burning them at the stake. And it's during this time, on the day in which 100 heretics were burned at the stake, that Jesus appeared and began mingling with human beings again. This wasn't in his second coming. It was in another appearance like the first one, except a shorter stay. He was walking the earth, healing the sick, and so on. I'll read a section here. In his infinite mercy, he walked once again among men, in the same human image in which he had walked for three years among men fifteen centuries earlier. He came down to the scorched squares of a southern town, where just the day before, in the presence of the king, the court, knights, cardinals, and the loveliest court ladies, before the teeming populace of all Seville, the Grand Inquisitor had burned almost a hundred heretics at once. He appeared quietly, inconspicuously, but strange to say, everyone recognized him. Jesus began to go about healing people. He found a blind man and healed him. There were various other miracles performed, but the one that got the attention of the religious authorities and the Grand Inquisitor in particular was the resurrection of a little girl. Jesus walked up on the funeral and reached down into the casket and touched the little girl's body and said the Aramaic words that you read in Mark chapter 5 when he raised the daughter of Jairus, Talitha Kumi, which are the only words spoken by Christ in this whole account that Dostoevsky gives us. The little girl is raised, and the Grand Inquisitor from his quarters is watching all of this through the window. And when he sees this, he rises up from his seat and decides he has to do something about this. Here's how he's described. An old man, almost 90, tall and straight with a gaunt face and sunken eyes from which a glitter still shines like a fiery spark. So the Grand Inquisitor has Jesus arrested immediately and brings him into his quarters. And it says that he stands in the entrance and for a long time, for a minute or two, gazes into his face. At last he quietly approaches, sets the lamp on the table, and says to him, Is it you? You? But receiving no answer, he quickly adds, Do not answer. Be silent. After all, what could you say? I know too well what you would say, and you have no right to add anything to what you have already said once. Why then have you come to interfere with us? For you have come to interfere with us, and you know it yourself. But do you know what will happen tomorrow? I do not know who you are, and I do not want to know whether it is you or only his likeness, but tomorrow I shall condemn you, and the very people who today kissed your feet 
tomorrow at a nod from me will rush to heap the coals up around your stake. So the Grand Inquisitor is very antagonistic towards Jesus. He begins to questioning, question him, and uh, Jesus is not answering him. So the Grand Inquisitor changes his, his uh, approach from interrogation to lecture. And what follows is one of the longest rants in all of literature. This Grand Inquisitor begins to lecture Jesus Christ as Christ sits silently listening to him. And what he wants to talk to him about are the temptations Jesus, Jesus faced in the wilderness by the devil at the beginning of his ministry. And the point that he makes, and remember this is a cardinal of the, of the Roman Catholic Church in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition, the point that he wants to make is that when Jesus faced the devil, he made the wrong choice. When he resisted the temptations given to him, the point the cardinal is making is that Jesus should have chosen a different path than he chose. All three temptations, he answered wrong every time. He refers to the devil as the dread and intelligent spirit, the spirit of self-destruction and non-being. He says, The great spirit spoke with you in the wilderness, and it has been passed on to us in books that he supposedly tempted you. Did he really? And was it possible to say anything more true than what was proclaimed to you in his three questions? which you rejected, and which the books refer to as temptations on earth. It was on that day, the day of those three temptations, the miracle lay precisely in the appearance of these three questions. If it were possible to imagine, just as a trial and an example, that those three questions of the dread spirit had been lost from the books without a trace, and it was necessary that they be restored, thought up, and invented anew, to be put back into the books, and to that end, all the wise men on earth, rulers, high priests, scholars, philosophers, poets, were brought together and given this task to think up, to invent three questions such as would not only correspond to the scale of the event, but moreover would express in three words, in three human phrases only, the entire future history of the world and mankind. Do you think that all the combined wisdom of the earth could think up anything faintly resembling in force and depth those three questions that were actually presented to you then by the powerful and intelligent spirit in the wilderness. So it sounds like he's speaking of the devil with fondness. It's surprising to hear a religious authority talking this way. And he's basically saying, if you didn't catch it, that if all the wise men of the world were assembled together to try to come up with those three questions, those three temptations or tests, however you want to look at them, they would not be able to do as good a job as the devil did whenever he posed these questions or tests to Jesus. Now he comes to the temptations themselves, and he's making a basic point with all three tests. He says, you could have given men happiness. But instead of giving them happiness, you wanted to give them freedom. And the idea that the Grand Inquisitor has that he's wanting to get across to Jesus is that freedom and happiness cannot coincide. 
you're either free and unhappy or you're enslaved and happy. There's no middle ground between those two things. So whenever Jesus refused to give in to the devil, he was choosing to give men freedom instead of happiness. Now let's get to the temptations themselves. Each temptation is tied by the Grand Inquisitor to a basic need of humanity for happiness. Mankind cannot be happy, he argues, unless he has someone to worship, someone to take over his conscience, and someone who can unify the world. It's the Inquisitor's position that without those three basic needs, humanity can't be happy. And each of these needs is tied to one of the temptations of Christ. I realize that his interpretation of the Gospels is wrong here. Just bear with me. I'm just relating what the Inquisitor in the story is saying, his argument here. He's the bad guy. Keep that in mind. So he's not going to get Scripture right, even though he's a religious official. That happens sometimes. Sometimes religious leaders don't get the truth correct. So this is realistic if it's not true to biblical interpretation. So, going through them, here's how he argues. First of all, the devil said, taking advantage of Jesus' hunger after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, command these stones that they be made into bread. And Jesus refused the temptation, quoting scripture, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the inquisitor said, you should have made those stones into bread, and you should have continued making stones into bread Because by doing that, you would have solved the greatest problem in human history, hunger. Not only would you have stopped starvation, but you would have eased the burden upon man every day to gather his food and prepare it and feed his children and feed the hungry mouths that depend upon him. If you had done that, if you had fed the world, they would have worshipped you and they would have been happy. The first need of mankind is bread. Now, the second temptation. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down. And then he quotes scripture from the Psalms, which says to some to the effect that, um, that the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, if you throw yourself off, scripture says the angels will swoop down and save you and keep you from dying. Now, the Inquisitor says, Now, I know that if you had thrown yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, you would have died because you would have tested God, and God would have removed his angelic help from you. But still, if you had done this, you would have given the people something to believe in. His argument, argumentation here is a little, little cloudy for me to understand. Another thing that he says is that man needs miracle, mystery, and authority. So he's talking about power here. The power of miracles, the power of mystery, the power of authority. And by this grand gesture of throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus would have given him that power that he needs that somehow would have relieved his conscience, relieved the burden of his conscience thus giving him the second great need, somebody to take over his conscience. That power would have relieved him. The third temptation. 
the devil shows him all the kings of the world in a moment of time and says, bow down to me and all of these will be yours. And of course, uh, the Lord refused to do that as well. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And with that, the gospels say Jesus sent him away and Satan retreated until a more opportune time. So the inquisitor takes this and he says, if you had simply bowed down and worshiped the devil and received all the kingdoms, you would have ended war, you would have ended political fractions and strife, you would have ended the problems of corrupt governments. In other words, you would have united you would have united the whole world in a Tower of Babel way and given man his third need. So man needs, he needs bread, he needs basic, essential living necessities, he needs somebody to take over his conscience with power, in other words, he needs authority, and finally, he needs unity. He needs the kind of political unity or globalization that, that you know, we hear people talking about today. He needs those three things, and if he has those three things, he can be happy. If he doesn't have them, but he has freedom, he'll be miserable. And he says, instead of giving him happiness, you gave him freedom because you want him to, to worship you freely. You want him to love you freely. You want him to love you by his own choice, but almost nobody does that. He goes on to say, there are a few who do but they have to suffer in order to do it. What about the rest of humanity who doesn't want to give up all of this to serve you? What about them? He says, the church has sided with the devil. We are on his side, and we are working to give mankind what you wouldn't give them. We give them bread. We give them authority or power. We give them unity. We are working on it right now in the Inquisition so that man can be happy. And he says, in order to do this, we, the religious authorities, are unhappy because we know it's all a sham. It's not even clear if the Inquisitor believes in God. Of course, he's talking to a man he believes is Jesus Christ. So one could argue that he does believe in God, but does he believe that God is good? Does he believe that he is true? Does he believe in an afterlife? It's not very clear that he does. He seems to say that we're all going to end in dust and oblivion anyway, so some of us might as well be under an illusion while the rest of us lead them in that illusion. And those who are in the illusion, they, they will be happy because they will have bread, they will have authority, they will have the unity that they need. And the rest of us, it's not too big a price to pay for the results that we are getting. He's trying to say that Jesus doesn't care about people and that he does care about people, that he can give them what they need. Now, Jesus' silence has been working on this inquisitor, and he starts to reveal, I think, a little more than he wanted to reveal. But as Jesus just silently and in a non-judgmental way listens the Inquisitor talks more and more about himself. And I found this part interesting. He says, Know that I am not afraid of you. Know that I too was in the wilderness, and I too ate locusts and roots, and I too blessed freedom with which you have blessed mankind. 
and I too was preparing to enter the number of your chosen ones, the number of the strong and mighty, with a thirst that the number be complete. But I awoke and did not want to serve madness. I returned and joined the host of those who have corrected your deed. I left the proud and returned to the humble for the happiness of the humble. What I am telling you will come true, and our kingdom will be established. Tomorrow, I repeat, you will see this obedient flock, which at my first gesture will rush to heap hot coals around your stake, at which I shall burn you for having come to interfere with us. For if anyone has ever deserved our stake, it is you. Tomorrow I shall burn you. And with that, the Grand Inquisitor ends his words. Is there a motive here? Is there a... Do we detect in this little concession um, a reason why the Inquisitor has captured Jesus, is burning people at the stake? Did he become bitter over all the sacrifices he made as a Christian in the beginning with sincerity of heart? And... Did he grow impatient because he wasn't seeing the results that he that he expected? Maybe. I, I love the ambiguity here, though. It doesn't really come out and tell us exactly what's going on. Now, the ending here is wonderful, the way the story ends. Uh, and I'm just going to read it. This is the way it ends. When the Inquisitor fell silent, he waited some time for his prisoner to reply. His silence weighed on him. He had seen how the captive listened to him all the while, intently and calmly looking him straight in the eye, and apparently not wishing to contradict anything. The old man would have liked him to say something, even something bitter or terrible. But suddenly he approaches the old man in silence and gently kisses him on his bloodless ninety-year-old lips. That is the whole answer. The old man shudders. Something stirs at the corners of his mouth. He walks to the door, opens it, and says to him, Go and do not come again. Do not come at all. Never. Never. And he lets him out into the dark squares of the city. The prisoner goes away. Ivan, who's telling the story, says that the old man, the kiss burns in his heart but he holds to his former idea. He doesn't relent. He continues to burn people at the stake. What a great way to end this. I know that people might want Jesus to stand up and give his argument and just destroy all the arguments of the Grand Inquisitor, but the gesture, the, the action, I think says more than any words could ever say. I just love the way that he represents Christ's response here. I think it's pretty true to the Jesus we read about, especially as we see him in his trials near the end of his life before the crucifixion. Now, why did Dostoevsky write this? What does all of this mean? I think there are a couple, we could talk about it all day long, but there are a couple of things that I would like to highlight that I think are very relevant today. One is, there's definitely a critique here of the church, capital C, and of religion in general. Uh, I see him drawing a distinction between Christ, represented by Jesus, and, and the church, represented by the Grand Inquisitor during the 16th century. 
There's a distinction between freedom and religion. There's a distinction between love and self-righteousness. And those distinctions are drawn between the difference we see in Jesus and the Grand Inquisitor. And it's clear here that Jesus is a hero. He's a good person in the story. So this isn't an anti-Christian idea, anti-Christian story. Some of you may have been listening to this, and you may have been offended by how evil and twisted the Grand Inquisitor was. But we can't get past the history here that there was a time when the church, capital C, in the form of Roman Catholicism, or maybe the church in other forms, in the Reformation, or in forms uh, in Russian Orthodoxy, or other Orthodox churches' traditions, uh, they abused their power, killed innocent victims, went to war, chose violence over love, etc., you can't get past that history. In fact, the atheists remind us of that history all the time. You hear about it all the time. But if you can say that I, as I believe it is correct to say, that at times, in fact, most of the time, the church has departed from the faith, that it's not what Jesus meant for it to be, then you don't have to defend atrocious practices of the church. This is something the apostles predicted. Paul in particular said, There will come a time after my departure that many will depart from the faith. There will be an apostasy. There will be a a general falling away of the church. This is going to happen before the world comes to an end. We have seen it happen, and there is corruption in the church. There's corruption in the church today. Just look at the headlines. Right now, the Pope is under fire because of continual sexual abuse in uh, the United States and in other places on the part of uh, Catholic priests. And not enough is being done about it, and a lot of it is being covered up because the church, capital C, is more concerned about power and authority and controlling people than it is about you know, getting people to follow Christ out of free love. Jesus wants freedom for people. He wants them to follow him by choice, and oftentimes religious corruption has twisted that into trying to force people to make this choice and control them into a certain way of life. You can't do that. You might be able to control their bodies, but you can't control their spirit. And God knows this having made us in his image, and he seeks people who follow him out of true, pure love. I think the Grand Inquisitor is wrong. I think the people will do that. And I think the religious corruption only hurts our chances at convincing people to do just that. So that's one thing. The the true uh, critique of religious corruption I think is needed. It was needed in Dostoevsky's day. It's needed today. I don't think you have to support religious corruption in order to continue to love Jesus. Do I believe the church in its pure form is out there? I don't think any church is perfect, but I think you can go out and find groups of people who are worshiping according to the New Testament and worshiping in a way of freedom and love instead of corruption and force and control and authority that does not belong to it. Now, um, there is something else here that I think will have more of a personal impact. I don't know if you picked up on this, but there is a huge question here 
that might make some of us uncomfortable if we ask it of ourselves and try to answer it. And the question is, what would you have rather Jesus did? What would you like? If you had the choice, would you choose to have freedom and suffer for having that choice? Or would you rather have the happiness that the Grand Inquisitor said was possible by having all your choices made for you, by giving up your freedom, by getting your bread without having to work for it, by having somebody else take hold of your conscience and tell you whether you know sin is a problem for you or not, by having all unity taken care of without your having to seek reconciliation or ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness? Would you like all the work done for you or would you rather have your freedom? And if many of us were being honest, we would have to admit we live in such a way where we would rather somebody just take all that difficult stuff away from us. Let somebody else make all of our choices. Let somebody else deal with all the forgiveness. Let somebody else bring us together. Let somebody else pay the price. And, and we just could put it in cruise control and be happy. If we're being honest, many of us are living as if that's the choice we would have made. Here's the problem with that choice. That's not life. That's not living. That's not being living after the image of God. Living after the image of God is having your freedom. Being able to love because you want to love. Following Christ because that's your heartfelt desire. That's a deeper life. That's a more meaningful life. And yes, it involves suffering and pain and and sacrifice but all of that also adds to the richness and the depth of really living and so real life is about having this freedom that Jesus insisted on giving us rather than just working miracles for us so that we'll be sure to follow the right path and one last thing what do you think about Dostoevsky's portrayal of Christ. What do you think about it? Is it accurate? Where is it accurate? Where is it off a little bit? It's an interesting question. I His portrayal of Christ is definitely one of the reasons this sticks in my mind. The gesture of him kissing the Grand Inquisitor after the Inquisitor says so many mean and awful and evil things to him. It just sticks in my mind. I can't get it out of my mind. I love it. And I think a lot of people are drawn to it as well. What do you think? You don't have to like it. Maybe you think it's not very true to the picture of Christ that you see in the New Testament. Do you think Jesus should have said something? Do you think he should have defended himself? Uh, Do you think it was effective to have him sit there and listen to all of that and and let the Grand Inquisitor say all of those things? Uh, Do you think it was true or realistic that in the beginning the Inquisitor was going to burn him at the stake, but after the kiss... He decided to let him go. Um, Do you think religious authorities would arrest Jesus if the true Jesus returned in the fashion that we see him return in the story of the Grand Inquisitor? Uh, You can just think about those things, or maybe you'd like to post an answer somewhere on Facebook, on Twitter, 
Uh, I'm going to post this episode on both those spots on the website, widemarginspodcast.com. Or even if you want to leave a review and put a little thing in there about this in the review uh, on iTunes. I'd love to hear feedback on these things, and especially this question about what do you think about Dostoevsky's portrayal of Christ? I plan to do an episode sometime on depictions of Jesus in culture, and uh, this is an example of that kind of thing, but that's way down the road. we got other things planned. I hope that you'll keep listening. We'll always have something going on next time on Wide Margins.